Hello everyone, my name is Haley Elizabeth and if you don't know who I am, this is my true crime podcast where once a week I sit down and I talk about all things true crime, ranging from murders, disappearances, cults, all the way to the biggest drug bust in history, the biggest bank heist in history, all things true crime. So if you're interested in any of that, you can head over to the YouTube channel Haley Elizabeth every Wednesday for the visual version or you could head over to Spotify, Apple, wherever you could find podcasts every Tuesday for the audio version. Now today's case, we are going to be talking about the case of the treehouse murder now there is a lot to get through so we're just gonna hop right into it on wednesday november 10th 2010 in apple valley ohio 32 year old tina herman never showed up for her four o'clock shift at dairy queen now this was not like tina tina was actually a shift leader and so she was always on time to work she always took care of her employees and most of all she was really good about calling her co-workers when she was going to be absent or late to work that day but when she no call no showed on this specific day her employees tried calling and texting to see if she was okay but they were met with no answer tina's manager valerie haythorne drove to tina's house to check up on her and saw tina's truck in the driveway along with an unknown car and lights on in the house valerie walked up to the house but there was no answer so she left a note on the door but valerie got a very deep feeling that something was wrong and so she decided to call the police she tells police that tina never showed up for work which was very odd for her because she had really good attendance and on top of that when she went to Tina's house the lights were on and her truck was in the driveway but no one came to the door. The police told Valerie that they were going to do a checkup on her and one officer actually showed up but when they knocked on the door and there was no answer they just basically left. Later on another officer showed up who did the same thing knocked on the door and when there was no answer they didn't go inside they didn't check for other points of entry they simply just left. And the next day, Thursday, November 11th of 2010, Tina's two kids, 13-year-old Sarah Maynard and 10-year-old Cody Maynard, never showed up to school. The teachers would say that both of the kids were there on Wednesday, the day before, but didn't show up Thursday. And ironically, at the same time, a man was calling into the police about his missing girlfriend, 41-year-old Stephanie Spring, who was Tina's best friend. Last time the boyfriend talked to Stephanie was 12.45 the previous day, and she hasn't picked up any of her calls or texts. Valerie went back to Tina's house and now noticed that Tina's truck was gone, but the unknown car was still parked in the driveway. Valerie walked up to the door again and knocked, but was met with no answer, and so she unlocked a window on the back porch to get in. That's when she was confronted with the horrific sight of blood everywhere. There was blood on the carpets, in the bathroom, drag marks across the home, and splattered blood filled the home. And without going any further into the house, she left immediately and called the police. The police showed up to find Tina and her two kids, Sarah and Cody, as well as her best friend, Stephanie, were missing, as well as the family dog, Tanner. The parked car outside would later be confirmed as Stephanie's car, but Stephanie was nowhere to be seen in the house. There was blood in every room and it looked to have drag marks going specifically from the master bedroom into the bathroom. Through the crime scene, they suspected there to be an assault with bodily injury. They also noticed that there was blood on top of the basement stairs as well as all over the basement floors. The police opened up an investigation and as they started investigating the home, they couldn't find a body and there was no personal belongings or signs of a break-in that could lead them to a suspect. Police knew that Tina and her boy friend were currently in a falling out and so they immediately interviewed her boyfriend Gregory Borders who lived with Tina and her kids at the time. When he was interviewed 
interviewed, he admitted that they were going through a rough patch and were still broken up, but they lived together. Gregory worked at a Target distribution warehouse an hour and a half away from Tina's home and was working overtime on Wednesday, the day that Tina went missing. He worked that Tuesday from 6 a.m. to 4 p.m., but instead of going home, he went to a friend's house in Urbana, to which the two of them went to dinner and stayed in watching movies. Gregory ended up spending the night at this friend's house because he had plans with him to go golfing the next morning. Gregory got a call on Thursday at 12 p.m. from Tina's mother saying that she was worried and she didn't know where Tina was and if Gregory had heard anything from her. That's when Gregory started to try to call and text Tina but was met with no answer. He didn't really think too much of it in the moment though. He was golfing with his friend at this time and so he just kind of thought, oh, maybe Tina took the day off work or maybe she slept in. I'm pretty sure she's fine and so he just continued golfing. It wasn't until he got home that night where he found police cars, crime scene tape, and an active crime scene going all over the home. Gregory was later cleared as a suspect after the friend had confirmed that they went to dinner and then golf the next day, as well as security footage proving they were in both places. Gregory's family actually came into his home with bleach to clean up all of the blood so Gregory wouldn't have to see any of it. So now with Gregory clear, they needed to find some more clues, so they started trying to search for Tina's truck. The truck was later found in a parking lot of Kenyon College with no sign of Tina or anyone else inside. While searching the home, they would get their first clue. When searching in the basement, they would find a Walmart bag with two tarps and a bag of heavy-duty trash bags, but in the bag, they also found a receipt, and on that receipt showed the exact location where the supplies were bought from. They went down to that specific Walmart, asked for the footage, and what they saw was a man walking out of Walmart with two tarps, a heavy-duty trash bag, a t-shirt, and a turkey sandwich. Walking out of the Walmart Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and was seen leaving in a silver Toyota Yaris. And this would have been the day after Tina, her two kids, and Stephanie had gone missing. They ran the plates on the Toyota and found that it belonged to 30-year-old Matthew J. Hoffman. Matthew at the time had two addresses. One was his mom, which was 0.4 miles away from Tina's house, and another home in his name, which was about 10 miles away from Tina. Police ended up finding Tina's truck parked in the baseball field parking lot of Kenyon College. And ironically, in the same hour that Tina's truck was found, Matthew was actually pulled over by a police officer in the same area, but not anything related to the crime. He was actually pulled over because he was caught rolling through a stop sign. But this officer didn't really seem Matthew as suspicious or didn't give him a ticket. He basically just let Matthew go afterwards. Police were looking into the criminal past of Matthew and found that there was a DV report or a domestic violence report from Matthew's girlfriend a month prior. Matthew had allegedly choked his girlfriend and was recently fired after, quote, making his supervisor uncomfortable. They contacted his girlfriend and said that he hasn't lived with his mom in months, and so they knew now what exact address to go to in order to find Matthew. A little bit of backstory on Matthew. Matthew J. Hoffman was born on November 1st, 1980 in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Not much is said about his childhood, but it was said that he was an only child and lived in an extremely abusive household. His dad was a full-time firefighter for 40 years while his mom was a stay-at-home mom. His parents had split up when he was three years old and he lived full-time with his mom and grew up without his father. But since his mom was a single mom, she was mostly out working and providing and barely really spent any time with Matthew. This led Matthew throughout his childhood, specifically his middle school years and his high school 
school years to sort of be very secluded. Matthew was very quiet, he didn't talk to many kids, and he really didn't have interest in making friends. Matthew was the type of person that enjoyed his own company and preferred to be alone than surrounded by other people. After high school in 2001, he moved to Colorado and had his very first episode when he broke into a home and stole all of their credit cards and then later burnt down that condo. And it was later known after the burning of this condo that Matthew had been living in that condo without the owner's knowledge for months. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the term squatting, but surprisingly, there's actually a whole community of people that refer to themselves as squatters, where basically they will live amongst a family or live inside of a house and it's kind of like a thrill for people to not get caught. So they will live in places like the attic or they will create little spaces inside of your home without your knowledge and it's basically like a fun game for these people to not get caught and be as quiet as possible which I think is absolutely terrifying and that's what Matthew did in this person's house before one day when the couple had left he took all their credit cards and burnt the whole place down. After this he was convicted of arson, burglary, assault, and motor vehicle theft. After his prison time he moved to Ohio to be with his mom Patricia. Now that the police knew where Matthew lived, they swatted his home and after knocking with no answer, they broke down the door and threw in a flash grenade to find Matthew sleeping on the couch in the living room. Matthew was immediately arrested and taken away while police investigated the home, but the home was bizarre. In Matthew's living room, the whole floor was covered with a big tarp and that tarp was filled with leaves. Leaves had covered basically the entirety of the floor in the living room and they also looked through the leaves, assuming that possibly the bodies were down there, but when they shifted through the leaves, there was nothing to be found. When they walked into the bathroom, they noticed that the walls of the bathroom had been ripped out, and in replacement of the walls were huge bags all filled with leaves. They found a locked bedroom, and when they broke into it, they found a weed-growing room, as well as two dead squirrels in the freezer. Police started looking around, and they found a cabinet in the kitchen, and once it was moved, behind it was a basement door. They walked down the stairs and there they found Tina's 13-year-old daughter, Sarah, lying on a pile of leaves. She had a sleeping bag next to her and her feet were bound with yellow rope and her hands had mittens on them with duct tape so that her hands were unusable. She was wearing a diaper made out of a plastic bag and appeared very confused and out of it when the police came to rescue her. She wasn't crying and she wasn't hysteric and all she kept saying was that she was late for school and if they knew where her dog Tanner was. Now, a lot of people assume that during this time, Sarah had suffered so much trauma and was just in a constant state of shock. And so when she was being rescued by the police, she wasn't even aware that she was being rescued. Sarah was later taken to the hospital and was found with an intense form of disassociation and was acting very numb to the situation because of the shock and trauma. She explained that her and her brother came home from school on Wednesday and was attacked by Matthew as they walked in the door. She tried to run to her bedroom, but Matthew caught her and dragged her to the basement where he tied her up with rope. He then dragged her upstairs and left her on the kitchen floor, then put her in Stephanie's car and drove to a baseball field parking lot before covering her with blankets and leaving her in the trunk for hours. He came back a while later and put Sarah in a different car and drove to his house where he put mittens on her covered in duct tape. He bound her ankles, he gathered 
gagged her and he put her in the bathroom closet. A couple hours later, he took her out of the closet and put her into the basement. Sarah says that she believes Matthew had killed her mom, brother, Stephanie, and her dog. Sarah would go on to say that during her stay, Matthew had cut her finger with a knife, SA'd her multiple times, and said that he was going to release her before Christmas, but never told her about what happened to her family. Sarah was then given to her biological dad, not Tina's boyfriend, because Gregory actually isn't the biological dad to Cody and Sarah. Sarah and Cody were Tina's kids from a previous relationship. While Matthew was put under a 24-hour watch because he was crying hysterically and tried to harm himself multiple times, Matthew nonetheless was taken into interrogation, and this was actually interrogation one of three because Matthew barely spoke the entire time. During the first interrogation, the interrogation opens and Matthew remains silent for the first 10 minutes before finally reacting by hitting his chest with one hand and making a destroying movement with his hands. Now, I think the reason why he did this was because the investigators were talking to Matthew about how he was feeling and if he has any remorse or regret for what he did. And I guess this was supposed to symbolize that his heart is broken. Even to this point, he still wasn't speaking. After this, Matthew closes his eyes and he keeps his eyes closed for 30 minutes until investigators start speaking as if Matthew isn't there. They try to talk about Matthew in a poor light, hoping that Matthew will get offended and speak up or even chime in to correct them, but it doesn't work. 35 minutes after that, Matthew lays his head on the table and sits like this for two hours until almost four hours into the interrogation, Matthew speaks up for the very first time by saying, quote, I can't tell you anything because I don't know. He then says that he knows he must have done something wrong when he saw a little girl tied up in his basement and so he, quote, took care of her. But Matthew's definition of taking care of her was he fed her a couple times, he let her watch Iron Man, and he allowed her to read the book Treasure Island. After the interrogators are getting nowhere, they bring in a female psychiatrist, and once this female psychiatrist was brought into the room, Matthew talked immediately. I guess the feeling of having a woman made him feel very safe because the two detectives before were actually both men, and the psychiatrist was sympathizing with him and saying things like, quote, I understand this is hard, and quote, you didn't mean to hurt anyone. Matthew responds to this tactic because he's now receiving a lot more comfort, which kind of makes him a little bit more comfortable to be vulnerable around her. Matthew then goes on to talk a lot, and he goes on to say that he knows he's a danger to society, but he doesn't want to be. He said that he read about antipsychotic medications online, and he'll take them if that means he won't be a danger to anyone. He then goes on to talk about his 2001 arson incident, how he set fire to a condo and stole all of their credit cards, and he explained this moment as a blackout episode. He said that when he came to, he didn't know what he had done, but figured it out when he found the stolen debit cards and the condo was on fire. Now, we're not really sure if either of these incidents were actually blackout moments or if Matthew is comfortable with playing innocent and the victim role, and very similar 
to the arson incident, he doesn't know anything of what happened when it came to Tina, Stephanie, and Cody's murders. Because at this point, the police do not have any of the bodies. But Matthew sits there claiming to know nothing about what he did. And this could also just maybe be Matthew trying to play crazy in hopes of getting sympathy instead of looked at like a monster and also able to dodge hard questions. But it's clear that something is wrong with Matthew. Even if he is dramatizing himself a little bit, Matthew had a living room full of leaves and throughout the entire interrogation, he never addressed it one time. He never addressed why he had ripped down all of his bathroom walls and filled them with leaves or why his entire living room floor was filled with leaves or why Tina was laying on a bed of leaves when she was found. It is believed that since his dad was a firefighter and also Matthew had committed arson in the past, maybe the leaves are connected to his abandonment issues with his father. Sometimes people who are alone and have no physical person to turn to, they will turn to material objects for comfort. He also was covering the basement door with a cabinet and that meant that he knew what he was doing was wrong. And if he didn't believe that it was wrong, then he wouldn't have been trying so hard to hide the basement door. Another male detective walks in and tries a little bit more of a direct approach at Matthew, but all Matthew does in response to the male detective is curl up on himself and cover his ears. When investigating Matthew's Jeep, they found leaves and weeds, assuming that he had put the bodies of Stephanie, Cody, and Tina in the trunk. This male detective calls Matthew out on the leaves in his living room and the bathroom, but Matthew remains silent and looks down at the floor. The only time Matthew responds or looks up from the floor is when he's receiving sympathy or being cared for. At this point, the female psychiatrist and the male detective are both in the room, and the female psychiatrist is playing a mothering and nurturing figure while the male detective talks to him like a father figure. This dynamic actually seems to be what makes Matthew respond, and you can tell that he's a lot more comfortable with this setup, meaning that since he didn't grow up with his father, and also he lived away from his mother all the time, he never really got the parental attention that he always craved as a kid. At this point, the male detective tells Matthew to put on his jacket while they take a ride back to his house to hopefully jog his memory of the crime and possibly where the bodies are. But this ride was simply just a joy ride for Matthew because he says when they get to the house that he doesn't remember anything, that he still can't figure out what happened, and that he's still clueless. Matthew once again remains silent and looks down at the floor and doesn't say a single word. And police conduct a second interrogation a couple days later and at this point Matthew is four days in and still no confession and barely spoke to the police. The same detective and psychiatrist from last time enter back into the interrogation room and this time Matthew is a lot more talkative. The detective makes a comment about how sometimes he will advocate for the criminals he's worked with and for the first time in four days Matthew makes eye contact with the detective when once again Matthew realizes that he's going to receive sympathy. Matthew then asks the detective what's on his ankles and the detective replies with quote that's my gun because he had his gun connected to a holster on his ankle. After this Matthew then asks to use the bathroom. The detective then says quote you're not going to try to overpower me and take my gun are you? And Matthew replies with quote 
No, I won't, but you can give it to someone if you want. They walk out of the room with the detective putting cuffs on Matthew because that comment about the gun kind of sat really weird on him. He wasn't sure that maybe Matthew was going to have a break and try to take the gun away from him. And so the both of them walk out of the room and Matthew goes to the bathroom and returns a little bit later. Now that the two of them are back in the room, the detective then tries a different angle and he tries to put sympathy on himself as the detective, saying, things like, quote, I'm sorry I tried, and quote, I feel like I've failed you, hoping that maybe this will evoke a reaction from Matthew. And it did. Matthew replied with, quote, I failed myself. After this, Matthew then tells a story about a nightmare that he had the night before about seeing, quote, some really disgusting stuff in a garbage can. He explains the dream was about a big food processing plant where they chop up food and there was big garbage bags and when he looked into the garbage bags, there was chopped up body parts in there. The detective then pleads with Matthew to tell them where the bodies were and if the quote-unquote dream was actually just real life. But Matthew goes on to switch the subject and Matthew actually pleads with the detective to take the gun from his ankle and shoot him so that this could all be over with already. So once again, it seems like Matthew is taking no accountability for what he did. He clearly knows that he killed three people but refuses to take any responsibility responsibility for it. He doesn't try to say anything, and even if he were to be blocking out these memories, it seems like even when the detectives are asking him simple questions, Matthew always finds a way to revert it to himself and try to get sympathy for himself and his situation. The detective says that there's no harm in Matthew telling him where the bodies are and that Matthew is already in prison and he's already facing time and trials, so revealing the location of the bodies will actually help him in his case. But it seems like Matthew continues to play victim and as a way to buy time, he refuses to confess to anything and once again goes silent. At this point, the woman psychologist is fed up and she basically says to Matthew, think about your future. Think about the things that people are going to say to you if you don't confess. If you don't say what happened, then people are just going to view you as a monster. But Matthew just remains silent and he says that the only reason he's even talking talking to the detectives is because he has no one to talk to in prison and it gets a little lonely in there. At this point, the detectives now realize that Matthew did not ask to meet with them because he was wanting to confess or he wanted to own up to his actions and bring justice to these people. He simply just wanted to talk to them because it was a change of pace to the typical prison life that he had behind bars. So once this happens, the psychiatrist and detective are fed up and they stress the fact to Matthew that the interview is going to wrap up and quote, this is the last time you can speak to us. Basically trying to really hone in on the fact that if there's anything you want to lay out on the table, do it right now because you won't have an opportunity to later and you may or may not see us again. You know, the next interrogator or next psychiatrist you get may not be as nice as us. So you really should confess now while you have the chance, but Matthew still 
does not say a word. So for the first two interrogations, they quickly realized that Matthew was not going to confess to a person. Maybe saying it out loud makes it too real for him and therefore his mind keeps on blocking out all the trauma. And so that's when they decide to go a different route and offer Matthew a written confession, to which in this written confession, Matthew finally reveals the truth. He said that he did lie about the dream of a food processing plant and the body parts in the garbage bags. He said he made it up because he needed a reason to speak with the police so that he wouldn't have to take his antipsychotic medications, which was a shot of Thorazine. And that's when he finally confesses to everything that happened. He says that he was staking out in front of Tina's home the night before the attack on Tuesday, November 9th. He said that he slept outside overnight in a sleeping bag in the woods right across the street before watching the family leave on Wednesday morning. While everyone was gone, he snuck into the home through the garage and his plan was to just rob the home and he specifically chose Tina's home because there was no close by neighbors slash witnesses. They kind of lived in a farming city, so each house had a lot of distance in between them. But while robbing the home is when Tina and Stephanie came home and caught him straight in the act. And so in a panic, he ambushed the both of them and he said he had a quote-unquote blackout episode. And when he came out of this blackout episode, he was quote, in a state of shock. I wandered around the house, slowly coming to the realization of what I had done and how bad it was. He had on him a jungle primitive SOG knife and stabbed both Tina and Stephanie to death. Once he had came to and realized what he had done, he made an attempt to clean off the blood of Tina and Stephanie in hopes that maybe cleaning off the blood then the crime wouldn't look as bad as it was and so that would explain the drag marks from the bedroom to the bathroom. He then confesses that at this time he had killed the dog Tanner because it wouldn't stop barking. But while trying to process what he had done to Tina and Stephanie, it only got worse when Sarah and Cody came home from school. As soon as they both walked in the door, Matthew lunged at the both of them and killed Cody immediately by stabbing him. While he was stabbing Cody, that's when Sarah attempted to run to her bedroom. And even though he had caught Sarah, for some reason, he didn't feel the need to kill Sarah. He just wanted to keep her safe for some reason. And he wrote, quote, I did not enter the home to kill those people. I did not know a single one of them. After killing Tina, Cody, and Stephanie, that's when Matthew had left Sarah on the kitchen floor tied up while he got in his car and drove down to the gas station to get gas cans with the intention of burning down the home. At this time, he was pulled over by an officer but was later let go and this run-in with the police made him very scared. So he decided to go back to his home instead of Tina's. At his home, he started up a campfire where he burnt his clothes, his shoes, and drank a bottle of wine. After he did all that at his home, that's when he returned back to Tina's home, captured Sarah, put her in the trunk of Stephanie's car, and drove Sarah to the baseball field parking lot. He then put a blanket on her and then drove into a separate car, which was Tina's truck, where he had the bodies of Cody, Tina, and Stephanie inside. And on November 18th, 2010, one week after the murders, 
that's when Matthew finally cracked and revealed to the police where the bodies were. He had hid the bodies in the coaxing wildlife area and said that the bodies are hidden inside of a tree with a trap door he had carved out himself. Police blocked off the forest area to later find a tree with a hole about six feet up from the ground and a second larger hole near the branches. When looking inside the tree, that's when they would find a big pile of trash bags. These bags were taken out and it was revealed to be the remains of Tina, Cody, Stephanie, and the dog Tanner. Matthew said that he put the bodies into the tree by using a top hole and a rig and pulley system to drop the bodies inside. Matthew said that he learned how to do this during his time as a tree trimmer and he had even hollowed out the tree himself. On January 6, 2011, Matthew avoided the death penalty by pleading guilty to 10 felonies. Matthew had a bizarre obsession with leaves and believes that he maybe hid the bodies in the tree because it was comforting to him. He was then sentenced to life without possibility of parole. His house went into foreclosure and was rebought, and the tree that hid the bodies was cut down. As for the aftermath of everything, Sarah, as of today, is a teenager. She is healing from everything that had happened. She has done a couple of interviews since then, and in those interviews, she discusses how she doesn't know why she was kept alive or what the reason of that was, but she dedicates her entire life to speaking out about her family's story. She spends most of her time being an activist for her family and her family's story, as well as an activist for mental health. And yeah, that is the end of today's case. If you guys found this case interesting, make sure to give it a thumbs up and subscribe if you are on YouTube or if you are on Spotify, Apple, wherever you can find podcasts, make sure to rate it five stars because that really helps me out a lot. And yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Make sure to get outside today, get some fresh air, make sure to stay hydrated and drink some water. And as always, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I will see you guys next week. Bye.